The Mystery of the Supernatural by Henri de Lubac Chapter 1 Ebb and Flow in Theology Whoever studies older Christian philosophy at its sources cannot but notice the difference in some concepts and doctrines that separates the doctors of the older schools from those of the modern, and this in matters of no small moment. This difference generally is easily explained by the advance in knowledge. In some instances, however, it appears to warrant a different explanation sought from an exterior principle. These words were said by Pierre Elter 40 years ago on a subject kindred to ours here, his concern being to contrast the old and new schools on the idea of beatitude. As he shows, one could quote many other examples of theological theories which were held, or seemed to be held, almost with unanimity at one time, at least in one part of the church, and later faded into the background, or should by rights have done so. I will mention a few examples that can hardly be contested. In the normative explanation of the relations between church and state, did not the so-called direct power theory hold sway in spite of strong opposition for several centuries? Yet what theologian would want to revive it today? Indeed, it has not simply been abandoned. Official papal teaching, which once favored it, has spoken definitively against it. However, I feel sure that if it were once again to find supporters, like the fiery Ab Jules Morel in the last century, they would certainly declare it as having been defined in the bull Unum Sanctum, or argue from the fact that St. Robert Bellarmine got into trouble for his indirect power theory, which was at that time thought to be dangerously minimalist. In regard to the redemption, Canon Jean Riviere, the author of a series of excellent historical works, once appealed to the law of development to show that while the dogma itself clearly remained unchanged, theological reflection worked gradually to translate it into ever less inadequate concepts. What this meant in the concrete was that a direct development would, by a sure progression, lead to a conclusion known in advance to the author. Hence, all the traditional elements which that theory could not accommodate must be ultimately rejected as incurable archaisms. Now, only a few years later, we are being asked from all sides, not without reason, though sometimes also not without inverse partiality, to reverse the process. We must, we are told, return to the rich and deep sources of Christian antiquity, which a one-sided development falsely extending the ideas of St. Anselm has wrongly rejected. We must return to the idea of Christ's victory, and in our studies of the redemption, give back to Christ's resurrection the key position it should never have lost. A stern but true lesson for our modern self-sufficiency. As for Christ's human freedom and merit, Abbe Maurice de Bates declared at the beginning of this century, and his opinion seems to have been ratified by theologians as a whole, that abandoning the authors of the past had been far from being invariably in advance. Innovations were not always improvements. The same must be said, he considered, on a great many questions upon which the old doctrines had been more than once wrongly abandoned. Among these numerous questions, per molte questiones, 
we can certainly include those so bitterly discussed since the 17th century concerning grace and predestination. Certainly, neither the Molinist system of middle knowledge, scientia media, nor the contrary explanation linked with the name of Banyas, ever had the support of all theologians. But between the two, they mustered almost all of them. Yet there are more and more people today coming from both camps who consider it better to hold a view at once simpler, less anthropomorphic, and older than either. Sertelanges, refusing to enter a nest of arguments, made a great many converts on this point, not least among them Maurice de la Tale. De la Tale's name brings to mind his Mysterium Fidei, which might well be described as an essay in the liquidation of the overcomplicated systems worked out in modern times. Indeed, ever since the Council of Trent about the sacrifice of the Mass. Having declared that the doctrine of sacrifice is one of the least developed of all the Church's doctrines, he does not hesitate to state that the three past centuries have not marked an advance, but a regression and that the theologians of the second half of the 16th century, from whom the theological teaching of our own day directly descends, falsified the meaning of immolation. One need not agree on all points with his masterly study in order to recognize that in embarking on criticism of this kind, de la Tale was doing something most salutary. The immense opposition he aroused is now only a memory, and the essence of what he taught is now commonly accepted. Finally, not to dwell too long upon examples, we have for the past 30 years been witnessing a similar movement in regard to the whole idea of what theology is. For some centuries, almost exactly the same time during which the systematized notion of pure nature was developing and finally coming to hold complete sway, Theologians were in general agreed in thinking their discipline was essentially a science of conclusions. Their work was not so much to penetrate, so to say, the revealed object in order to gain some understanding of it, as to start from it as a basis and go on to find more and more consequences which must, of their nature, become more and more remote. Now, despite the considerable differences, even of method, among them, the theologians of our day seem ever more united in rejecting such a conception as a mistaken one, and a more exact knowledge of the teachings of the great scholastics, especially St. Thomas Aquinas, strengthens them in this view. St. Thomas conceived the science of theology less as something added to scripture than as something contained in it. For him, to study and understand the Bible remained an end and theology a means. Following him, therefore, we are tending to recognize that theology, however elaborate its methods, however much it makes use of the instruments of reason, however independent of exegesis in its complete autonomy of technique, never really goes beyond the word of God, which must always measure, impregnate, and judge it. What has happened to so many other theories may well happen to the theory of pure nature that has been developed, specified, and systematized in the West over the course of recent centuries. It has ruled uncontested among theologians and has been accepted as fact. We may note, however, that its reign appears short in the context of 20 centuries of Catholic tradition. 
We may also note that it is a theory that has never penetrated the theology of the East, nor has its absence ever been seriously considered as an obstacle to unity. Even those who, like A. Palmieri, have set out to stress the doctrinal divergence between the two churches, make not the smallest allusion to this particular point of difference. This is most significant, especially to those who quite rightly consider that a knowledge of Eastern doctrine is indispensable to the healthy Christianity of the Latin West. It is not that we must always sacrifice or even modify our own ways of thinking, but the recognition of this kind of divergence within the unity of faith has a most beneficial effect on our own sense of proportion. It saves us from certain exaggerations. It helps us to hold in their proper place theories which, however strongly we hold them, we must be tempted to let intrude into the sphere of divine truth. The fact that pure nature, in the modern sense of the word, is something not considered at all in Eastern theology is explained by the fact that early Greek tradition contained no such idea. I do not say that it therefore denies it. Nor, I believe, was it contained in Latin tradition till a very late date. Certainly, the building up of the new theory had varying repercussions on the interpretation given to older texts. One can see this even among the major authors. For instance, St. Thomas dealing with a double beatitude, or man's supernatural destiny. The clear opinion of the angelic doctor has been obscured and drawn to alien means. So ingrained has the habit become that it calls for much time, and sometimes the most painstaking effort of analysis, for us to learn again how to read these texts, even when in themselves they are perfectly clear. Yet the phenomenon is a natural one. Then, too, many people are already coming to abandon the former arbitrary harmonizing of Augustinian and Thomist doctrines, with the result that many, but not all, have no hesitation in rejecting St. Augustine, or at least admitting that he is less explicit or less distinct. Generally speaking, they somewhat reluctantly recognize that some ancient authors speak obscurely and ambiguously on this matter. But there are some who still believe their theory to be supported by St. Thomas Aquinas, though there are signs that they are becoming less certain of this. Thus, Pierre Pedro Descoc, seeing that St. Thomas's opinion was being interpreted in every way, recently declared that it should be left out of the argument. We will leave it to the professional historians, he said, to resolve the debate, if they can ever do so. And many of the wisest historians have prudently sidestepped the issue. The turning point in the history of Thomistic thought is marked chiefly by the work of Cajetan, 1468-1534, though this was of course laid on ground already prepared, and was accompanied, and then continued, and to some extent transformed by the work of others. The 16th century theologians took note of it, Suarez, for instance, while following Cajetan on essentials, recognized the innovations in the latter's position, though he looked for some solid traditional support for Cajetan's eclecticism. There were some who judged the matter in stronger terms. Francis Toledus, the Jesuit, for example, fought most conscientiously to reestablish the true thought of St. Thomas against what he considered the innovations of Cajetan. 
Dominic Soto, the Dominican, considered that Cajetan's gloss on the text of the Summa destroys the text, destruits textum. Later, Macedo, the Franciscan, bitterly criticized the arbitrariness of Cajetan's commentaries. And there were many more, some of whom I shall have occasion to quote further on. These statements and protests seem then to have been quite forgotten. But for some time, similar voices have been heard again. One wonders, wrote Canon Balthasar in 1928, how Cajetan could have arrived at his interpretation and how it could have really been taken seriously for so long. In 1933, in the Bulletin Thomist, Père A. E. Mott wrote, Basically, Cajetan's exegesis misconstrues the whole direction of St. Thomas's work. The interpreters who came after him softened the crystalline texts of both summas. They misunderstood the point of view of the schoolmen and erred in their interpretation. In 1934, in Angelicum, Father Valaro, though not discovering St. Thomas's thought fully, also showed the gulf between the Summa and its major interpreter. In 1936, again in the Bulletin Thomist, Pierre Mott was able to rejoice to see the growth in the number of theologians who are breaking with the tradition of Banyes and Cajetan, and carried on by the Salmentinses, Gonet, Gauti, and Biluart. Father A. Ranieri echoed this in Divus Thomas. A few protests, like that of Father Angelo M. Pirota, complaining of this audacity and trying to prove that Cajetan, with perfect coherence, always and everywhere published and taught the true and solid teaching of St. Thomas on the question at hand, failed to arrest the movement. In 1952, though still somewhat timidly, Father Juan Alfaro, S.J., added his protest. And then, in 1957, in the first fasculo of his review, Divinitas, Monsignor Antonio Pialanti declared that the great cardinal separates the two orders, natural and supernatural, in a way that completely differentiates him from St. Thomas. It is, in fact, quite clear that in denying the created intellect any natural desire to see God, whereas St. Thomas said and repeated, every intellect by nature desires the vision of the divine substance. Omnis intellectus naturalater desiderat divine substantiae visionem. Cajetan was in no sense clarifying or developing Thomas' teaching on the matter. Far from pushing it to its ultimate conclusion or bringing it to its goal, as has been suggested in a praiseworthy attempt to achieve harmony, he was profoundly altering its whole meaning. Etienne Gilson has pointed this out more than once in relation to other articles of the Summa Theologica. Whether interpreting St. Thomas or Aristotle, Cajetan never brought to bear any disinterested historical curiosity. Several times, Cajetan's commentary is not what St. Thomas says, and we can observe in him a kind of failure to enter into the fundamental ideas of his author. The distinctions he introduces so skillfully are not directed to making St. Thomas's thought clearer, but to substituting his own. By the end of his commentary, as much remained of the article as remains of a watch when the spring has been taken out. Father S. Dox, O.P., 
confirms this in regard to the subject we are considering here. Kajitian, he said, deciding that he cannot accept that man as God's image should be ordered to the beatific vision as his end, alters the reasoning and even the text of St. Thomas. Instead of basing his argument on the nature of man as made in God's image, he regards that nature simply as elevated by grace. As long ago as 1908, in his distinguished but largely misunderstood thesis, Pierre-Pierre Rousselot demonstrated this. To counter Cajetan's interpretations, he said, it is enough to quote the development of the theory in the Summa Contra Gentilis. In it, the same proofs are taken as conclusive, both for man and for separated substances. Through what experience has one perceived in them that desire, if it be not natural but contingent? St. Thomas thus sees the need for beatitude as something anterior to concrete, redeemed man as we observe him. The first and most general of his arguments, clearly and of set purpose, applies both to angels and men. It is in the nature of intellect as such that he places a certain attraction, a certain longing to see God as he is. Apart from the word need, which belongs to the vocabulary of modern controversy and is not a good translation for St. Thomas's idea, I cannot see how one could deny what Rousselot says. At the same date, another theologian, H. Ligard, a Sulpician, recognized somewhat euphemistically that Cajetan's teaching is rather on the fringe of his master. A disciple of Rousselot, Pierre Guy de Broly, was later to speak of Cajetan's subterfuges and to regret how many modern Thomists had stumbled into them. Cajetan leading the way, Preunt Caetano, Pierre Victorian Doucet added soon afterwards. And Pierre E. Brisbois described the whole interpretation as governess-like, restrictive and minimizing. Pierre T. Deman, O.P., coming to define the famous Salmanticenses doctrine on the natural desire to see the divine essence, said that they placed themselves in the Thomas tradition of their time, which was likely to be less faithful to what we today tend to think of as St. Thomas's authentic thought. Most people, in other words, whatever may be their personal view, have given up making St. Thomas responsible for the dualist theory which would deny all natural desire to see God, a theory which used commonly to be fathered upon him, owing to quite untenable interpretations. In 1905, Pierre Vincent Bainville had practically abandoned them, considering that St. Thomas's answer to the problem is made rather to surprise than to instruct us, and admitting later that his formulation seemed rather disconcerting. In the same way, Pierre Pedro Descote, returning to the subject in 1938, declared St. Thomas's texts on the natural desire to be really antithetical, and his thought carried into two exclusive and irreconcilable streams. He then looked upon Cajetan not as a faithful commentator, but as a metaphysician and theologian of the first rank, giving a reasonable explanation to account for his master's apparent inconsistency. In these circumstances, 
still to persist in seeing St. Thomas as the source of our modern dualism by arguing that any concession on the point must turn St. Thomas into an Augustinian is not a real argument at all, but an admission of defeat. Few of those who really read and compare the texts would now give unqualified support to the idea that Cajetan did not innovate, or that the dissertations of John of St. Thomas on the subject constitute a veritable summit of that powerful and traditional effort which had been going on for several centuries. Few would be satisfied to settle the debate by referring to the capital distinctions established by the great commentators. Few, if any, now faced with perfectly clear texts, would think it enough to observe that one cannot follow St. Thomas by following into a material literalism and continue to say without closer examination that the traditional positions of the Thomas school are perfectly in accord with those of its founder. It is understandable that some have taken time to accept the idea that our great commentators might not always have been absolutely faithful mirrors, or that they might not always have been content, as the Carmelites of Salamanca put it, to guard the deposit faithfully. Nonetheless, a rightful anxiety for historical accuracy now replaces that rather dubious exclusivism, as Pierre H. D. Gardel, O.P., delicately but effectively put it, which sometimes ended in masking, to some extent, the master's own thought by that of his commentators. A few lazy minds will soon be left alone in defending what they continue, despite all the evidence, to call the common interpretation. Indeed, there are many theologians who would go much further and now declare that they can find no explicit affirmation in St. Thomas of the concrete possibility of a purely natural order, remembering always that this means a complete order bearing within it its own final end in the modern sense of the expression. They now expect, rightly, to find only that he lays the ground, though obscurely and in a somewhat roundabout way, for a theory which they can themselves see no way to reject or modify. This is what Pierre-M.J. Leguilu expressed in carefully chosen terms in 1950, and the Reverend Edward J. Montano said something similar in 1955. Medieval theologians were not concerned with the question of pure nature. As Pierre-Jacques de Blique points out, and Pierre Guy de Broglie set out to investigate why it was only in the 16th century that the theory of pure nature was first explicitly stated. Others like Pierre Cor or Pierre Congar make it clear that in St. Thomas's language, a state of pure nature would be self-contradictory since to him, pure nature is nature considered in itself. In other words, independent of all reference to God in its constitutive principles, in its quid, independent of the status in which it is to be found. Some good historians are even more decidedly and radically negative. One, for instance, tells us that the 13th century scholastics consider the problems of nature and grace without ever reverting to the idea of a natural order within creation characterized by a transcendent natural end. The same is said more precisely of St. Thomas by Edgar de Bruyne, 
Dom A. Stoltz, and with a more detailed analysis by Pierre-Henri Boulard. It seems to me that the view of these historians cannot fail to become the accepted one with the proliferation of painstaking and disinterested studies on the subject. As Pierre-Henri Rondet has said, sooner or later, agreement is bound to be reached. But it is not with this last point that we are chiefly concerned here. If we look more closely at the question, it is hardly surprising that the resistance should have been so strong. A number of theologians, continuing to maintain and block the natura pura theory, which has always been the framework in which they have seen the whole doctrine of the supernatural, refuse to examine its origins and foundations. Others, however, influenced by the change affected in the historian's positions, are ready to make that critical examination. They no longer then see this question of pure nature as a troublesome question whose theological solution presupposes the demonstration of its philosophical basis and which can be left aside in order to come to an agreement. Some are even more definite in considering that this hypothesis is of more embarrassment than use to theology. To give up using such a hypothesis systematically and exclusively, to consider the way it has developed not as a central blossoming of theological thought, but rather an excrescence, does not necessarily mean that we reject it totally in itself, nor does it mean that we abandon those aspects of truth which, for a time, it was able to preserve nor certainly does it mean that we derive the precisely opposite conclusion from the same presuppositions. It does not, therefore, mean that we align ourselves necessarily with those who, for one reason or another, deny its possibility. Indeed, it may even be the best service we can render to the demands of its warmest supporters. What it must mean, as in several of the cases I mentioned earlier, is that we return at once at least to some extent, to simplicity and to antiquity. Returning to simplicity, complication does not always indicate progress in thought. Far from it. Indeed, multiplication does not always mean fruitfulness. Obviously, one must not, in theology or any other discipline, systematically reject every analysis, every distinction, every new precision which results from the need to avoid errors or from the spontaneous activity of the mind. But it must be admitted that often the force and even the depth of a doctrine are more diminished than increased by over-enthusiasm. The tendency to curious questionings is not always the tendency to genuine thought. Gerson said as much in speaking to the theologians of his day. The indefinite proliferation of concepts or accumulation of hypotheses is not always without its dangers. In theology, as in philosophy, it may, from time to time, be indispensable to go on that slimming diet which Leon Bruskvik once recommended. Returning at the same time, in some sense, to antiquity. This does not mean returning to a rudimentary or undifferentiated state of doctrine. It is naive to picture the movement of ideas through the ages, above all in theology, as never being anything but a long elaboration, a long process of passing from the implicit to the explicit, the confused to the distinct, the virtual to the actual, 
until that marvelous time when this evolution will have reached its final point, unless perhaps we see the road as one that remains forever open. After all, while from the point of view of a later age, he might appear less distinct, an author might in fact be far more so in relation to the problems of his own time. Then too, by stressing some values, human weakness, from which theologians are not exempt, inevitably leads them to neglect others, and theology is not miraculously preserved from periods of decadence. Such ideas are, in fact, in a science whose nature should have preserved it better from such encroachments, echoes, though of course unconscious ones, of the facile doctrines of progress in which an earlier age delighted. But we cannot take as models either the middle classes under Louis-Philippe, who thought they had brought the era of revolution to an end, or the intellectuals at the beginning of this century who gazed with delight at perspectives of unending progress open to them by Condorcet. This we know, the church, guardian of revealed truth, assures for us in every age the unfailing preservation of faith, pure and complete. Every age contributes more or less felicitously its effort to express the meaning of that sacred deposit with explanations adopted by the magisterium and sometimes actually solemnly ratified by it. Not everything that results from all this theological labor is, however, destined for such ratification. Not everything can be canonized, nor is everything equally sure, equally permanent. In the development of dogma, acquisitions and exclusions are permanent. In theology, there is room for a mass of hypotheses, probabilities, controversies, of stumblings and recoveries. Extravagant branches sometimes grow upon the tree. History is always there, sometimes of quite recent date, to remind us of this. I cannot therefore share the superstition to which some theologians seem to subject that praises modernity as such, whatever their precise definition of the term may be. I do not think we can cast off doctrines that have a long tradition behind them and which no competent authority has disclaimed simply by labeling them archaic concepts or outworn theories and giving no reason for doing so. I do not consider that an attitude of scorn towards the past disposes us well for preserving its heritage, even the best elements in it. Nor do I think that some happy fate destines us to think of everything in a less inadequate manner, simply because we have been born more recently. We cannot authorize every new theory as a development without discriminating we can add nothing to our admiration of God by praising the splendidly modern character of his creative personality. I do not deny progress, even in theology. I do not even say that no progress is surer or more permanent than that element in theological progress which advances in the development of dogma and ultimately becomes part of it. I realize that apart from this element, there is another of great value, and I am far from the spirit of angry grief felt by the writers of Port Royal, who constantly complained of new inventions being fabricated, as they said, every day before us, and passed off as the ancient faith of the church. For that ancient faith, we know, is alive, and life must of its nature be fruitful. What I believe is simply this, 
that theological progress is never total, never without false steps, and that not everything should be accepted always on principle, without examination and thought. In the case we are concerned with here, the doctrine of the supernatural, are we, as some people think, returning to Augustinianism? Yes and no. Yes, in one sense, for it is certainly true that Augustine's work offers us one of the most profound expressions of that fundamental paradox, which is man's relationship to God. But, first of all, the essence of this Augustinianism applies as much to the great scholastics of the 13th century as to Augustine himself, and one would not wish to lose the advantage of any of their clarifications. It applies also, as I have said, to the Greek tradition. It is not linked exclusively with the thought of Augustine, and the greater example of Thomas Aquinas shows that it can be well integrated with an Aristotelianism transformed by the principles that underlie all Christian philosophy. The vision of God itself is essentially the final end and beatitude of the human soul. An Augustinian teaching, certainly, but the text is from St. Thomas. Secondly, St. Augustine himself and many of his disciples generally lumped together two problems which we have long since learned to separate and which, in fact, the Greek doctors who came after Irenaeus separated, the problem of the final end and that of man's initial equipment for the journey to salvation. Misunderstandings have continued for 15 centuries as a result of that confusion, and it is of major importance for us to clarify. Lastly, returning to the essence of an older position can never be purely and simply a return. Archaism I use the word advisedly, of this kind is always deceptive. It is as illusory, in the reverse sense, as the idea of inevitable progress. Those who wrote before us are not our masters, but our leaders. Non domini nostri sed duces fuerunt. To refer to the ancients, said Cassiodorus, enables us to escape from all kinds of objections and difficulties. And there are some difficulties that face us from which we ought not and cannot escape. The passing of time has brought to light deviations and errors, sometimes of the greatest subtlety, which we must meet with an equal subtlety and exactness. Furthermore, neither St. Augustine, nor St. Thomas, nor many others could consider all the problems which arise and will always arise in the human mind as it studies the datum of dogma in the same terms as we must, without unthinkingly adding any personal factors, consider them today. In this sense, it is true to say that we never retrace our steps. We never return to the past. Our faith is not old, is not something of the past. It is eternal and always new. Although, as it seems to me, no change need be made in the general economy of past teaching, and although we can still adopt the idea our fathers have left us, of our fundamental relationship with our supernatural end, there is still much to be done in accordance both with our actual intellectual requirements and with the present state of theology. And in view of the difficulties which the development of thought has produced or accentuated, there is a need to show more clearly how this key idea remains completely in harmony with the demands of faith.